Let us go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, you are holy and you are glorious beyond our understanding. We are so inadequate to worship and praise you. We would ask that you would cleanse our minds, purify our hearts. Lord, make our mouths acceptable to you in all that we say and sing. Give us thoughts, give us affections, give us words that truly honor you. We live in a dry and a broken land. Everywhere we look, there is suffering, there is injustice, there is evil. Our sin, Lord, has made a mess of everything. Yet, in all your brilliance and compassion, you are redeeming and restoring. You have gone to immeasurable lengths to save us. You are bringing perfect newness out of death and out of depravity. Worthy are you to be praised and honored and exalted. As we are gathered here this morning, sin's symptoms prey on us and oppress us. We desperately need your strength, wisdom, and hope. The issues and challenges among us are numerous, but you know each one intimately and perfectly. God, make yourself known. Equip us, encourage us, empower us. Help us to be your people no matter how arduous the path is before us. Lord, motivate us to trust and magnify you in every situation. For the one who is here this morning that does not know you, I pray that the Holy Spirit is already working in them. That you would convince them that the gospel is true. That you would convict them that sin is without remedy apart from you. That you would regenerate their heart today, even now. That you would call them to yourself and gift them with the faith to follow you. Lord, we ask today that you would restore our fortunes in you. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, Psalm 126 is one of those psalms that you may be familiar with. It's often used to encourage God's people toward evangelism. Those last couple of verses talking about sowing with tears and bringing forth a harvest remind us of our responsibility to indeed proclaim the gospel, to share the gospel in this world in which we live. But there's so much more here in the psalm we would be remiss if that's all we focused on. I think that it's power-packed and I think that it is relevant for our lives today. It's simple. It's comprised of two parts, only two parts. He speaks to us about reflections, reflections about past restoration. And then he offers a supplication for present restoration. 
So we want to break this down this morning, talk about it a little bit, see how it does affect our lives. Let's look first of all at the first three verses and we see his reflections on God's past restorations. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Most believe that the psalm is pointed toward the time that Israel came out of exile in Babylon. That as they were set free by Cyrus the Persian, by edict, that's what the psalmist is pointing toward. You remember that the Assyrians first invaded the northern kingdom and pillaged and plummaged the the um, northern kingdoms, the ten tribes there. And then in uh, the early 6th century B.C., the Babylonians came and they began to bring about great difficulty there among the people. And not only did they, did they ravish the land, but they took, they took captive the best and the brightest of Judah, and they took them to Babylon. You'll remember Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They were a part of that wave of captivity. They were taking, taken into bondage by the Babylonians. And so the psalmist is referencing the emancipation that took place after that 70-year exile. When the Lord set them free and restored the land, restored Zion, it was a phenomenal inexplicable time in the life of the nation. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, He offers us some details about that. He says, when this happened, we were like those who dream. God placed limitations on the captivity, you remember. He was using the captivity as discipline against His people. He raised up the Babylonians, the Assyrians, to discipline His people. Then He raised up those that would annihilate and take out those that He used to discipline. It's an incredible, fantastic story. He placed limitations on this captivity. It would only last for 70 years. Jeremiah 25 and 12 says, Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Then in Jeremiah 29.10, he says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. God plainly told them what would happen and when it would happen. Yet when it happened, it was an extraordinary thing. It was unexpected in so many ways. Listen to how William Plummer describes this event. He says, although that event, Israel's deliverance, had been predicted and the time for it fixed by prophecy, yet so deeply had the iron gone into the souls, so insolent and cruel had their oppressors become, and so little were appearances in their favor, that when God broke their bondage and set them free, the Israelites knew not how to credit the announcement. They were incredulous. The news was too good to be believed. Have you ever experienced anything that was too good to believe? You say it's been a while. We've all been there. 
Something happens and you say, that's just too good to believe. Many of you, maybe you have dreams occasionally that are so vivid that they almost seem real. You ever have that happen to you? I don't remember my dreams. They say I dream, but I don't remember them. Mine are not very vivid, I guess. What about having something that's unreal or something that's real seem like it's unreal? That's what they're describing, something that actually happened that seems totally unreal. It's overwhelming for them. Is this a dream? Can this really be happening? Not only was it like a dream, but he says our mouths, our tongues, were filled with laughter and with joy. Mouth and tongue are parallel, as is laughter and joy here. This reference to joy, the shouts of joy, is joyful singing. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Unsolicited and un and very remarkable kindness by the Persians was simply staggering. God moved upon Cyrus's heart and led to his edict that set them free. There was no military campaign. There was no military victory accomplished. No one saw it coming. It was a God thing, and it took their breath away. Israel didn't see this coming because they were usually a point of hatred, a focus of hatred by all Gentiles. Have you ever lost your appetite for laughter, for joy? Have you gone through a season of sorrow and sadness that's so oppressive that you no longer have a taste for laughter? You don't know if you'll ever come back to a point where your heart feels light enough to appreciate or enjoy simple things in life. That's how God's people felt in captivity. It was a heavy and oppressive time. Our world is filled with many people that are in bondage to misery. They don't know it. They don't realize it. They don't recognize what's going on. But they're in bondage. They're oppressed. They may be empty on the inside because they're just living with their own sinful nature. Or even those who have decided to follow Christ are still struggling with a bondage to this world and all of its problems and issues. Wrapping up too much hope, too much expectation in the things of this world. They may laugh, but it's not heartfelt. People of God had been discouraged for so long. They thought the days of laughter were long gone. Then the Lord delivered them. It was incredible. What a release. Physically released from bondage. Emotionally set free from the oppression, the darkness of the soul. Joy and gladness filled their mouths. They were constantly singing glad songs. Then notice what else he says. The nations marveled and said, The Lord has done great things for them. The nations, the pagan nations, the heathen nations, were observing what was going on in these people, and they gave testimony to the greatness of God. Well, that's an incredible testimony, isn't it? 
Some people believe it's our job to convince the world of God's greatness. But nowhere does he tell us of that. He says our job is to be available and be faithful to him. He'll take care of making his own greatness known. We have numerous examples of this in Scripture. I referenced Daniel earlier. What about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You know, they, there was an order that they were supposed to bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar to adopt the religion of the land, the Babylonians' religion, and they rejected that. They said, we won't do it. Even under penalty of being thrown into a fiery furnace. But that's exactly what they did. They said, God may deliver us and He may not deliver us, but it doesn't matter. He will be honored and glorified. We're going to do what He's asked us to do. We're going to be faithful in this moment of testing. You remember the story, right? King looked in. What did he see? He saw not only those three guys walking around and their clothes weren't singed, didn't smell of smoke. The ropes had fallen off. But they were not burned, they were not harmed, and there was a fourth in the furnace with them. And the king, Nebuchadnezzar, he was stunned by this, and this is what he said. He said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent, sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. The pagan-hearted man, the heathen-hearted man, the egotistical man was so stunned by what God did that he broke out in praise and honor to Yahweh. Last week I mentioned to you Rahab over in Joshua chapter 2. When the spies came in and uh, the king was looking for them there in Jericho, and Rahab took them in and hid them. You remember her conversation with the spies, why she did this? She said, look. This, this, let me just read it to you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and, you, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. God's people remained faithful, available to God. God exalted Himself. And the pagans, the lost nations are crying out His praises. It happened to Peter and John after Pentecost. And they were preaching the resurrection of Jesus. And they were brought before the powers that be. And they were told, stop preaching this stuff. And they said, well... <laughs> You do whatever you need to do, but as for us, we can't stop speaking the things that we have seen and heard. When they looked at them, the Scripture says that they, they knew they were untrained and uneducated men. There was nothing impressive about them. They're common, everyday fishermen. 
But they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And they were put off by that. They were disturbed by that. They were intimidated by that. The psalmist says that when God brought us out of that bondage, it was such an incredible story, such a marvelous story, that even the pagans around us, the lost nations, were looking upon the scene, and they lifted their voices, and they began to sing, How great is their God! How wonderful is their God! And then he says, Well, we sang, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Our hearts are happy. How could they not be? How could they not rejoice about God's restoration? It's tempting to lose sight of God's faithfulness. We get caught up in a sea of selfishness and entitlement. We presume upon God's goodness. Just assume that He owes us something, when in fact all that He owes us is judgment, right? Apart from Christ, this is what we are due, but God has extended mercy and He offers restoration, reconciliation, newness, a return to His presence. When Israel recognized God's provision and restoration, they sang. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. We've talked in recent weeks about the difficulty of the times that we've been through in the last few months. They say, well, let's stop talking about it. (laughs) I can't stop talking about it. It's a part of our DNA now. It leaves a mark. It's been difficult. It's hard to put into words. But our God has been faithful. Our God has been faithful through it all. When I thought that I could not go any further, didn't have the will to go any further, God has brought me further. Every time I wanted to give up and just die, God brought comfort to the soul, a soothing comfort, a rejuvenating comfort. Every time I thought the cost was too high, He fueled my faith. Every time the bitterness tried to drown me, God came in with kindness and washed it away with sweetness. I don't know the answers to all the questions. I don't know the hows, the whys, or what will happen tomorrow. But I do know this. The Lord has done great things for me, for us. And we are to be glad. The psalmist encourages us to reflect upon God's restoration. Then he changes gears and he begins praying for a present restoration. He thinks about all that God has done before and it moves him, inspires him, empowers him to pray now for a present restoration. He was lost in memories from the past, good memories, but now he's back in the present and it's a difficult present. 
There are lots of tears. There's lots of dryness. He's talking about deserts and crying and sowing seeds in that environment. That's not a hopeful environment or situation. So what's he saying? Well, I'll tell you what he's saying. He's saying, Lord, I remember how you brought rejuvenation and restoration in the past when you liberated us out of bondage, when we had no hope, and you moved in and did incredible things that inspired us to sing and celebrate your restoration and your power and your glory. And he's saying now, Lord, do it again. Would you do it again? There's several things I want you to see in this prayer. First of all, I want you to see the one to whom he is praying, Yahweh. Don't run past this. I know some of you are thinking, well, of course he's praying to God. But don't take it for granted. There are people when they pray, they pray just to be praying. Their hope is wrapped up in the prayer activity. If we just pray, they say. I say, okay, but... What are you praying and to whom are you praying? Some people trust their own faith or believe. I just have faith. Well, faith in what? Everybody has faith. You have faith that your employer will deposit money in your account on payday. You have faith that those pews you sat in this morning were going to support you and hold up your weight. You had faith this morning that the brakes on your car would work when you were speeding down the road. You all have faith. You have faith that the food that you'll consume today will actually nourish your body and not poison your body. Faith is as much a part of our ongoing lives as breathing air. But what do you have faith in? You see, your faith is only as good as the object in which you've placed it. Your prayer is only as good as the object in whom you are praying and trusting. Yahweh is the object of our faith. This is the one we pray to. He and He alone is our hope. Up on Mount Carmel. You remember Elijah had challenged the false prophets. Ahab and Jezebel were ruling the roost and they were wicked. More wicked than any king that Israel had ever experienced. Just to prove how wicked Ahab was as he went out and found a wife who was a pagan wife. He wouldn't even marry someone from Israel. 850 false prophets who were devoted to Baal. Elijah said, gather them all together up on Mount Carmel. God is ready to show himself. And he challenged them up there. He said, look, I know you're committed to your God. I know that you believe Baal can do for you all the things that you need doing. So call on him. Let's have a contest. Let's see whose God actually is God. And you remember the scene. They put their altar together and they put a sacrifice out there and they were going to call for their God to consume the sacrifice with fire. And so the prophets of Baal, 850 of them, began to pray. And they began to go through all kinds of hijinks and gestures and screams and chants. And they did this while Elijah 
cooled himself over in the shade of a rock somewhere. And he taunted them. Well, he's obviously not hearing you. Maybe you should call louder. Maybe he's out on holiday. Send him a cablegram. And they went on and on and on. 850 of them. It was the state religion. And Elijah finally said, you know what? Don't think this is working. Why? Because they were praying to the wrong God. They were praying to an inanimate God. A powerless God. They were praying for the sake of praying. Elijah said, dig a trench around it, pour water on it, just wet it down so, uh, so it can't catch fire. No, this won't be accidental. One guy, one faithful guy, and he said, God, would you? And God sent fire down and consumed not only the sacrifice, but the wood and everything else there, even the water on the ground. Why? Because he prayed to the true God, Yahweh. Yahweh. Elijah's prayer was simple and God-honoring. And God was exalted. So note the one he is praying to. Also, I want you to see the psalmist is desperate. He's in tears. Jesus said in Luke 18... In verse 1, that we ought to always pray and not lose heart. Just because God doesn't answer in that moment, we should not stop praying. But keep on praying. That sometimes God responds because of the faithful longevity of our prayers. That He's testing just how committed we are. Just how, how convinced we are that He and He alone can work among us. In Deuteronomy 9.25, Moses shares his own testimony about the golden calf episode. You remember? And he said, God, God wanted to kill the people of Israel. He wanted to kill you. And he said, Moses went and prayed for 40 days. It's hard for most of us to pray 40 minutes, isn't it? 40 days Moses gave himself to Desperate prayer to God to spare Israel. Jeremiah 29, 13, he says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with some of your heart, a little piece of your heart, a few minutes out of your day, a day out of the week. No, he says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. With all your heart. Even when we don't know what to pray, Romans 8, 26 and 27, he says, even if you don't have the right words to say, the Spirit of God, for those who are believers, the Spirit of God will intervene and he will take, he will take the desires of the heart. He will reconcile it to the will of God and he will pray in a way that's pleasing to God and beneficial to us. He's desperate. The psalmist also prays in faith, in genuine faith. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. 
like the streams in the desert. The Negev is the desert south of Judah. It's next to the wilderness of Sinai. And wilderness is an understatement. Most of the year, almost all the year, it's hot, oppressively hot. Sun-baked soil, barren. There's nothing green there. Nothing grows there. There's no water there. It's brown. It's dead. It's lifeless. There's certainly no fruit to be gathered. But in the winter, in the winter, in the rainy season, the rains come. And the rain will suddenly fill up those dry, parched, cracked gutters that run between the hills. And water will flow. Streams will flow. And with the flowing water comes green. Things begin to burst to life. Things begin to bloom. Edible things begin to appear. And so he is referring to that. He's saying, we're in a dry and barren and cracked place. Restore our fortunes like the streams in the Negev in that dry, unfruitful season. Make our lives, our hearts like winter rains coming again. And he takes up this agricultural picture of sowing seeds, even when it's a dry and dusty time, because he's doing so in what? In faith that God will do again what he's done so many times before. Sowing the seed is the plan, even in barren and hard times. It requires faith that God will bring about all the conditions and bring about a harvest. Sow the seeds, cultivate them, and believe God. Trust Him. Pray with earnestness. Pray with genuine faith and wait for God. And then he prays in expectation and hope in God's faithfulness. The Lord has been faithful in the past. He's restored our fortunes in the past. He certainly can do it again. This is His character. This is His nature. He's a benevolent, kind Generous God, restore our fortunes like those streams in the desert. As we sow in tears, in sorrow, in uncertainty, we know we can reap in joy. We know it because this is who our God is. We're not determining the future by what we see in the present. We know we will come with a harvest, even with our sheaves, singing joyfully by the gracious hand of our Lord. Lord, restore our fortunes now like you did before. Act in my soul because I'm in a desert place. I'm in a dry land. My heart and my soul are baked and oppressed and barren. There's nothing fertile there. There's nothing green there. There's nothing lush and vibrant there. Lord, will you restore the fortunes of my soul like streams in the desert. Make things live again. I need fresh water to quench my thirst. I need fruit. I need rain 
Bring the renewal. Bring the restoration. God has provided the ultimate restoration through Jesus. Jesus went where we couldn't go. In order to ensure that we could have what we desperately need but couldn't acquire for ourselves. In Him, He reminds us He has restored our fortunes. As a result, we can walk in new life and vibrant joy and gladness. No matter what we see around us. No matter what the world says. No matter what's going on. What our circumstances may be. We can go forth trusting that our fortunes have been restored. This morning, we are here before the Lord's table. It reminds us that He has restored our fortunes on that cross. And as a result, we can walk in this newness of life. As we stand and sing, I invite you to receive the bread and the wine. And that you be reminded that through His grace, He restores our fortunes.